Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to open up your word, to hear again these holy words that you spoke 2,000 years ago. And we pray right now, Jesus, that we would be open to you, to your voice, that we'd be able to think about what it is to hear these words in that context and in our context today, and that we would be deeply changed by you and by your call for your kingdom. We ask all this in the name of your Father, and in the name of you, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week we focused in on Beatitude, Matthew chapter 3, 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Beatitude, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next verse that follows just after that is, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, and that's the verse we'll be focusing in on this afternoon. And the title of our message today is, Cry, Baby, Cry. So if you are a crybaby, if you're around a crybaby, if you um, experienced just like two seconds ago the crying of a baby, um, this is for you. The first thing I'd like to point out is that as we're looking at this verse together, happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted, we should immediately be struck by a significant contradiction in terms, right? Immediately. Because in our economy, happy does not equal mourning, Right? When I say, how are you doing today? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling so happy. You don't typically equate that with also being distraught, mourning, brokenhearted, unable to move um, as a result of deep, deep loss or depression or, or hurt or pain. Jesus starts with this really weird phrasing. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, for those of you who weren't with us last week, we talked about how that word at the beginning in Hebrew is ashrei, in Greek, makarios, and it simply means happy. It's not quite so much blessed. And so it's really weird to hear those two together. Happy are those who mourn. So what I'd like to remind us right now as we think about the Beatitudes, and we talked about some of this last week, Beatitudes are to be distinguished from blessings. Blessings are effective pronouncements which God himself has deemed to be the agent of the blessing, like God blesses Abraham or God blessed Noah. That is not the word that we find at the beginning of the Beatitudes. It is not the word for blessing. It is also, when we approach the Beatitudes, oftentimes we've been told that these are things we should strive to be. These are attitudes to be. Well, this becomes a problem the moment we get to this verse. Because I don't really want to be part of a, of a place or a teaching where people are trying to tell me, you are supposed to be mourning. Like that's, you know, and you'll, you'll be happy about it, darn it right? You should mourn all the time, and you should be happy about it when you do it. These are not necessarily either be attitudes. Um, they're not those things in which we are supposed to just have this attitude to be that God is somehow prescribing what it looks like to be this really great Christian, and you would be poor in spirit, and you would be mourning. Now, there are aspects of that and calls to that in this, but it doesn't start that way. Instead, when it says, happy are those who mourn, we are immediately immediately met with the reality that the happiness is not found in the condition. And we talked about this last week. The happiness is found in the kingdom promise that God gives. So it is not that we are happy because we are mourning. We are happy because though we are mourning, we will be comforted. Just like last week, we're not happy because we're poor in spirit. We're happy because those who are poor in spirit are also invited in, and the kingdom of heaven is made up of such of these. So it is not the condition 
that makes us happy. It is the promise of God that gives us that happiness, that joy, that wonderful news. This is wonderful news for people who are poor in spirit, who are downtrodden, who realize their need for a Savior, the people who are far off from the kingdom who've been excluded. If you'll recall the setting for the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus gathers everyone together, there are people there in the crowd who are sick, diseased, demon-possessed, paralyzed, pagans, Jews, Gentiles from every corner, people who often are pushed out. And Jesus says to them, happy are you because this kingdom that I'm building is made up of you. You're not happy because you're poor in spirit. You're happy because you're invited in. We are invited in. Now, when we look and think about mourning and loss, I just want to let you know that the ancients viewed loss, grief, sickness, disease, and death much like we do. They didn't like it either. So when you look back to the Bible times and you think, well, maybe they felt different about mourning and that's why they were happy that they were mourning, that would be a really poor equation. They're not happy that they're mourning. They're not happy that they are sick or diseased or demon-possessed. They feel badly about all of those things too. And when we look into our text overall, the whole of the Bible, we find many places where the Bible gives voice to lament, to mourning, to this condition of people who are deeply broken and sad. These people in the Bible feel the same way about it, the way we do. They're brokenhearted. There's a whole book in your Bible just called Lamentations, just to give voice to lament. There's a whole book in your Bible about a man named Job, who simply has experienced the worst of loss in his life. And then the rest of the book follows people who try to give him an answer, try to come around and comfort him. And the end of the book is, you don't get an answer, Job. The answer is, I'm God and you're not. And the whole book, I believe, is included into our story, into our text, because God wants to give voice to those of us, for me too, who have experienced deep loss, who are mourning, and who want to ask questions like, well, whose fault is this? Who sinned? They come to Jesus and they say, who sinned? This man's been born blind, so who sinned? Did he sin somehow in the womb or did his parents sin? The ancients wanted to find reasons and create reasons for why these things had happened as well. And they wanted to give voice to this. We also see in our gospel text that Jesus himself weeps. When Lazarus dies, Mary has been waiting. Jesus has not come. And he shows up and everyone is weeping because Lazarus is dead. And he says to them, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So we have places in our text where God himself, Jesus, God in human form, right? God himself, God wrapped up in flesh, weeps over the city of Jerusalem as he walks in. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And Jesus weeps over the city. So we have expressions of mourning and weeping, not just found in our larger Bible story, and also not just found in the life of Jesus, but also in his death. Those of us who are Christians, we follow a suffering God, a God who chooses to suffer for us, who goes to the cross for us, who weeps and begs God to take that cup away from him before those moments. This is the faith of Christianity. It gives voice to deep pain. It gives voice to those who mourn. But oftentimes when we encounter our faith today, 
we are set up to believe that if you are following God, if God loves you, if God is blessing you, that you will somehow be protected from loss, from hurt, from pain, and from mourning. And yet there is nothing that we can see in the Bible that would suggest such a thing. But it's a deeply held belief. And it was deeply held by the ancients too. Because that's kind of how we want the world to work. <clears throat> there was a, a terrible a terror attack a few years ago in Israel where three uh, young teenage boys were um, hitchhiking Israeli boys, which is very common in Israel, and they were kidnapped and killed by Hamas. Uh, the three mothers here who lost these, um, their sons are holding their pictures here. This mother, she got up in front of everyone, and it was for 18 days that the whole world started a Bring Our Boys Back campaign. It wasn't clear that they had been killed right away. People were looking for them everywhere. And she stands up in front of the world, and she said, I've always known that there has been evil. I've seen it. I've seen it happen to other people. Now that the evil has touched me, should I doubt? I never doubted when it touched someone else. But we do that, don't we? We find those moments where we think somehow I, God, should be protected from this loss. I've done everything right. I've tried to love you. I've tried to do all the good things. I saved myself before marriage. We went to pre-marriage counseling. It was fantastic and wonderful and amazing and incredible. We did it all the right way. We followed all of the pastor's instructions. We got married, and then it was a disaster. And God, why didn't you protect me from that? Or I did everything right, and I tithed every weekend, and we did all of our Bible studies, and we prayed every morning, and we prayed every evening, but my family member still got cancer and died. Or this car accident still happened. Now, we hear these stories happening all the time in the news. We hear them happening all the time in the Middle East to Syrians, people who are in the largest refugee camp in the world in Africa, People here in our own backyard, we hear these stories all the time, we witness them, and yet not until the evil touches us do we start to doubt God's very love or care for us. You see, because we seek a reason, even when there is none, and then we'll invent a reason because we desire control over the uncontrollable. There's a Humans of New York has been following the stories of pediatric, pediatric cancer this past week. And there's a story of this family where the husband says, I just knew it was my fault. I just knew there, there had been something I must have done that had caused my son to have cancer. I went to God. I begged God, like, please forgive me. Take me, not him. Because we seek to find a reason for the things that are unreasonable. The human body, the human mind wants to understand. We want to be able to control this. So if we can find the reason for why this kid gets cancer and this kid doesn't, if we can find the reason why this person meets a, an untimely end or loses their job or they don't get married and they really want to or they can't have children and they really want to or they have too many children, when we try to figure out those reasons why, we feel like we might be able to control it and then we might be able to protect ourselves from having one of those things happen to us. And all of these problems, they were all there in Jesus' day too. And people are trying to understand so when you got sick, when you were unclean, when you got leprosy, when you were demon-possessed, when you had seizures, when you were paralyzed, then it must have been something that you did that caused this thing to come upon you. 
And the Psalms give voice to this. Over 40 to 50% of our Psalms have portions of lament. We have a voice and a Bible that says, yes, these cries to God, this is not fair, this is not right. Why has this happened? God, please do something about this. All of this is included in our text. And yet somehow we think that we should be protected from the forces of this world, from life. That somehow it should pass over me. But the Bible teaches us through all of this that grief, loss, mourning is guaranteed. The death rate's 100%, right? We're all going to die. And this does not mean that we are not blessed or that God has abandoned us or that we did something to deserve such a fate. This simply happens. This is the world we live in. It started happening as soon as as Adam and Eve ate the fruit. One brother killed another. It started happening right away. It's been in our world since the beginning, and we are in the process of trying to see light break through and hope break through and all of that. But let's be honest, good, wonderful, amazing people are touched by grief and by mourning and by loss and disappointment all the time. And that is the group, which would be all of us in this room, that Jesus is speaking to. Happy are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Not, happy are you who follow me, for nothing bad will ever happen. Happy are you who follow me, for you will never be sad. No, happy Wonderful news for you who are mourning. You, too, will receive comfort. You are not far outside of the touch of God. So there's a few things we can learn from this. If mourning is guaranteed, then how shall we mourn? Well, we could take the Ron Swanson approach from Parks and Rec, which is that crying is only acceptable at funerals and the Grand Canyon. And I think we have many people in our lives, and even there's been studies about how boys are taught very young that crying's not acceptable. Shake it off, suck it up, move on. You don't get to express your feelings or your tears to the point where later in life, most men will say, it's, it's been years since I've cried. Women are, are given the permission to have a nice, good cry. Some women will go and even try to, like, I just need a good cry, so I'm going to watch beaches or something like that, right? I just needed a good cry, so I'm going to watch this movie so I can just get that good sob out. And sometimes we just need to hide in our room and have a good cry. Sometimes those are not the droids that you are looking for, and you just have to express that disappointment a little bit. Well, psychologists and scientists have found out that crying is actually good for you. This is part of how God made us, that when we cry, we release toxins It kills bacteria in our eyes. It can improve our vision and our mood. It can relieve stress, and it can boost communication between two parties. Because when one person starts to say, I'm deeply heartbroken about this, the other person is also cued to start having some compassionate response also. Uh, This is my dear friend, Christine Kirsten. She lost her leg to cancer when she was 17, And I met her after the cancer um, had gone away and right before it came back. Uh, She had a wicked sense of humor. 
So you can see her, she's got a saw here in a hardware store, pretending she's sawing off her leg. Um, this was one of her many Halloween costumes. And she would frequently go to the beach and then come out of the water and yell shark, uh, dragging her stump. <clears throat> yeah, loved her. So fantastic. And as we would get to know one another, like when I met her, she was hopping on crutches and had the one leg and we were in college to retreat together and we started a conversation of you know, sort of how can I pray for you and we were doing this fun Christian Bible study together. Well, you see, when we meet people like this and sometimes the wounds aren't so clearly able to be seen, we meet people who've clearly gone through something. Something's happened here that's not quite right. It was always bizarre when we'd be, she's young and beautiful and stunning, and she was um, on Northern Exposure as an actress, and before she lost her leg, she danced on Soul Train, and she was an amazing, vibrant woman, and we'd be sitting in L.A. and Hollywood, and we'd be like, you know, at this little booth, and she'd just have her crutches leaning up, and then the waiter or waiter would say, oh, dude, what happened? You know, like it's a ski accident. And she'd always lean in and go, don't feel bad. I don't have a leg. Cancer. It's just not the, ex- you know explanation you're expecting with 20-something. And they always felt really bad, right? That's why I also never ask a woman if she's pregnant. Just saying, you're all, that's just, you're going to feel bad if if it's not true, right? So you don't ask people about, like, let them tell you their story. But some of us have these wounds that are very clear. Some of us have wounds that are hidden. And when Kevin and I were first dating, I had seen so many people walk away from a relationship with Christine because they knew that the cancer had come back and they didn't want to grow close to someone they thought they might lose. I I watched people walk away from Christine because they didn't want to have to go and do hospital visits um, because the conversations were awkward because having to have that conversation about why did you lose your leg and, oh, it's not a skiing accident, all of that was just a little bit um, uncomfortable for people. So Kevin and I were dating. Well, actually, we hadn't really started dating yet. Christine came up here to spend a week with me, and I watched him with her. It was like a little bit of a test. How do you deal with somebody who's mourning? Can you deal with somebody who's dying? And can you treat her like a normal person in the room? And he did all the right things. He ignored me completely. He would run around and help her. I'm like, yes, Cancer Girl does get helped out of the car first, right? Cancer Girl does get to pick what we eat for dinner, all of those things. And at the end of the week, she looked at me and she said, I think he's the one. I was like, really? All right, well, then I'll hold his hand. So then we had our first date later on that week. Because I know that part of what Jesus is saying here is that there's an invitation to respond when people are in mourning or when we are in mourning. N.T. Wright says that we must know that the meaning of the beatitudes we must know the meaning of the beatitudes for ourselves, so that we may make them real for others. Because we are called to be people of comfort as well as people of grief. This world is difficult. Anne Lamott says, "Into every life, a little crud must fall." She doesn't say crud. Um, we understand that grief will happen. And it will be difficult, but that our calling in the beatitude, according to what we hear Jesus doing here, is he's inviting us into these moments, not to believe that there's some theodicy issue behind it of like God did this or God didn't do it or God's not in charge or God's not big enough, but simply to respond in those moments to people who are in mourning, who are suffering, who are brokenhearted. Christine... um, 
lived this incredible life. If I look like I'm in my early 20s, it's because I was. Um, This is her outside of her northern exposure trailer getting ready to film. And this is Kevin and I getting married in Las Vegas on a weekend she felt well enough to be at the wedding. Because she really wanted to be at the wedding because I had been in hers. And she had gotten her terminal diagnosis about nine days before this wedding. We whipped it together really quick. And it was kind of like a bit of a wake as well as a wedding. We knew the end was coming. It's been a long time. I still miss her. And when these things happen in our lives, they can start to form our identity. We can start to walk around and say, I'm the person who got divorced, never got married, lost a kid, never had a kid, lost a friend, never had a friend. And we start to let these things become deep parts of our DNA. And they do become part of our story, but they are not our identity. And this is the good news that Jesus is inviting us to. You're mourning and you're far off, but you are invited in. Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 4, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who've died so that you may grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have died. You see, what we find in 1 Thessalonians is that we have grief, but with a powerful hope right in the middle of it. And it is that which forms our identity. We can have identity theft in moments like this. We can start to walk around and just become identified by the loss. And you have friends like this, loved ones like this, who get stuck, and their whole identity is just the loss. I had a friend whose husband left her and the two young kids for, like, the secretary. And I was trying to help her, and I'd watch the kids and going to the grocery store. And every person that stopped her, like clerks, grocery clerks, just checking in, you know, just checking groceries. Hey, how you doing today? She's like, well, my husband left me. He slept with the secretary. I have two kids. I mean, it was like, they, it was so awkward constantly. Strangers constantly being placed on awkward moments because... She had become identified by this story. She was taking her whole identity as, I am the one who's been left. I am the one who's been wronged. I am the one who is in deep mourning. And nowhere at any point was there ever any comfort allowed. But our loss does not define us. Instead, it's a classy Vegas picture, right? Instead, As N.T. Wright says, grief is the shadow side of love. Not to grieve implies that you haven't loved. And if you have, then not to grieve is to live a lie. Mourning and grief are good things. It shows that we know what the world should be. We know and understand that death and disease and loss is not part of God's plan. We know and we understand that Jesus desires more for us but weeps with us in the moment. And we can show 18 years later that a dear friend who drove in the middle of the night on the one day she felt good to get married, to watch me get married in Vegas with my husband, I still deeply care about her. And I haven't forgotten her. 
And it was before the internet and Facebook. 18 years later, she still remembered, and I still grieve the loss because it was so good. So here's a tissue. Have a good cry. It's okay to mourn. But we do so with the full knowledge that we anticipate the resurrection. We don't grieve as those without a hope. I grieve the loss of people who have gone before me. I grieve when I stand and have to officiate a funeral for a six-year-old boy. I grieve when I'm in the room and we have to turn off those machines. And I watch him slip from this side to the next. And I tell people all the time, if you want a pastor that's not going to cry with you, uh, you should find another one. Because the only thing I can do at the funeral for the six-year-old boy is stand and weep. But I do so with the knowledge of the resurrection. With the full belief that I will see him again. In whatever world or however God works it out. But, but that it is going to be set to right. And one of our core values, our five core values here at Spark, one of them is resurrection. Because ultimately all of these things are deeply shaped by hope. Grief is here, but hope is here too. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And we're not diminishing the hope we have in the resurrection when we grieve our loss. And when we are excited about the hope of the resurrection, we are not diminishing the loss either. Both are here and both are good. Happy are those of you who are mourning because you are now being comforted. Part of the reason why Jesus can say that is because he expects a ministry of presence. You see, the Beatitudes are not only promises, but they are pronouncements of grace, and they are agendas, N.T. Wright says. N.T. Wright says that the Beatitudes are Jesus' agenda. He is describing what it will look like in the kingdom that he is building, the one that's breaking through right at that moment. He's explaining to all of the people who are around him, all of these brokenhearted ones, the mourning ones that are coming. How many people do you think were sitting in that place, bringing, watching loved ones being brought to Jesus for healing, but their loved one had passed away just a year before, or a month before, or a week before, or two days before Jesus showed up? They're still mourning there in the midst of the hope and the healing, and Jesus is inviting it all in. All of that can come in to watch the kingdom begin to break through. Starting to break through. Now, it's tough when we want to walk with somebody who is in deep mourning. And I don't know if you yourself have been in deep mourning, but people used to say just silly, silly, dumb things. Yeah? Or you found that people want to move too quickly towards the hope. Oh, don't worry, you'll see him again. Oh, God just needed an angel. Um, yeah, no, I'm kind of not okay with that. He could have waited till after she got married and had kids and grew old. Right? He's God. He doesn't need that angel right now. Also, he exists outside of time, so I don't want to, right? Like, like there's always a whole bunch of theology. See, this is why I'm a pastor. A lot of theology questions right there. So instead... We need to figure out how do we simply be present with people as they mourn. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of Job's friends who show up and try to explain the inexplainable. C.S. Lewis talks about this after he had lost his wife. He talks about this in A Grief Observed, and he says, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not, and I hate it if they do and if they don't. Isn't that true? 
You've been in a place of deep mourning. You want people to acknowledge it, and yet you also don't want them to talk about it at all. So when we're in these places of, of mourning and of loss, it's tough for somebody to do anything. But when we flip the beatitude here, it's people who are being comforted. That is why they are having that joy. They're not happy again because they're mourning. They're happy because they are being comforted as they are mourning. It's that ministry of presence. And some of us are just sympathetic criers. Some of us can just show up right with somebody, and they can just start to tell one second of their story, and you'll just break down. And if you have that gift, man, I used to just hate that I have that gift. I think it runs in my family. My grandfather had it too. Just at the Star Spangled Banner even, he'd start to weep, right? Or a good Hallmark commercial. And now I've really trusted, and I now start to see that these tears that God gives us, that those are signs of the presence of God. Those are signs of a sympathetic ear, of the ministry of presence. Those are signs of the Holy Spirit. That that is how we have comfort. I did have a dear member of Spark say to me one time, you're my pastor because you cry with me. I was like, good, check. I can totally do that. I can cry with you anytime. And sometimes we just need somebody to sit there and cry. Just sit there and be with us and say nothing. Just mourn with us. Just bring comfort with us. And if you can't remember what to do, just take the lesson of Louis the comfort dog. Just be there. Louis has no wisdom to share, no golden retriever moments that he's going to be able to drop some great, this is why this happened in your life, this is why God did this. He just goes and lets people give him a hug. He's just there. We're not blessed or happy or experiencing wonderful good news because we're mourning. We're blessed and happy because we will be comforted now and in the kingdom to come. That there is hope here. We know this to be true because in Revelation chapter 21, it says this, that the new heavens and the new earth come down and that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the old order has gone and the new has come. We look forward to a time when things are being set to right, but with the knowledge that even right now, this bit of kingdom is breaking through and that this agenda that we find in the Beatitudes is an invitation for each one of us to come alongside one another and to help wipe a tear, to sit in those moments. The Beatitudes give us a picture into the radical upside-down kingdom in which Jesus is ruling and reigning and we're invited into the creation of that kingdom alongside the king. If you think of a kingdom then you'll think of a place where you can go and talk to the king. You'll think of rules that rule and reign over that kingdom. You'll think of the people that get to live in that space. Jesus is creating a place where everyone is welcome, where those who look far off from God or those who look like they haven't been blessed by God or those who are mourning and barely dragging themselves out of bed in the morning and just can't get through the day without weeping, that all of us 
all of us are in this kingdom and we're invited into the presence of the king. But not just that, he gives us an identity in Christ as sons and daughters of the king, full citizenship in his kingdom. And he says, come, help me build this place. And we get invited into these moments where we get to simply come and be with those who mourn so that we can bring comfort and see the kingdom break through. And when we are mourning, we also look to be comforted. This is how his kingdom works, and it requires deep vulnerability on the part of both people, both sets of people in that equation. So go ahead, cry, baby, cry. Jesus says it's okay. And then lean into the joy that it is to be comforted by him, by his presence, as he mourns and weeps with us, and by one another, as we simply walk this road with one another and try to build more of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for being with us as we mourn. Thank you for comforting us with that knowledge that though there is suffering, though there's deep pain, we believe that you are here, weeping with us, mourning with us, and bringing the body of Christ around us so that we can be comforted. That there's good news even when we mourn, that we are still belonging to you, that we have not been cast out, and we are not far away. Draw all of us close to you, for those that we know who are in mourning, who are suffering. God, we pray that you would comfort them with a comfort beyond our understanding. And we also pray, Jesus, that you would help each one of us hold and move into the hope that is found only in you in the resurrection when there will be no more tears and no more death. And you've set things right. Amen.